You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. There seems to be a perception among Christians that Lutherans are somehow against holy living or against good works. And yet in the Catechism we confess that we ask God's name to be holy among us and that this takes place when the Word of God is taught in its truth and purity and we as children of God lead holy lives according to God's Word. God says, be holy, be perfect, as I the Lord your God am holy and perfect. But does he really mean it? Stay tuned for Equipping the Saints with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Equipping the Saints. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline. Uh, we have no idea where the vicar is at today. He is uh, uh, noticeably absent. And so uh, we'll make note of that on his final vicarage report. I'm sure he's doing some vicar or perhaps even husband kind of things this morning. And so uh, he'll probably come uh, drifting in later on. But uh, we serve the saints uh, gladly, joyfully, and uh, very, very much thankfully at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Equipping the saints is to take us into the realm of holy living. We know that sometimes Lutherans get accused of not emphasizing uh, the positive aspect of the Christian life. Uh, This is a bad accusation, a false accusation, and uh, we're trying to uh, stem the tide of that. We emphasize justification, the fact that we are justified declared righteous by grace through faith on account of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The uh, blood of Jesus is dripping in every sermon, every Bible study, every hospital or shut-in visit, and that is not to the exclusion of the rest of God's Word, which uh, clearly teaches us how to live in this new life that God has so graciously given us. The uh, New Testament scriptures, especially the epistles of Paul, uh, give us a, a great blueprint for uh, this kind of uh, discussion. We've worked our way through much of the book of Ephesians, and we've been for the last several episodes, this is episode 24, For the last several episodes, we've been talking about Christian ethics, and then more specifically, Christian sexual ethics, and most recently, we've been talking about God's gift of marriage. Uh, Pastor, some some thoughts about uh, where we've come and uh, where we are parking the car about now. Yeah, well, we've definitely talked about the foundation for marriage, which comes from the book of Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We've talked about how that's the foundation for everything. We've talked about some of the ways in which that is damaged by our fall into sin. We've talked about divorce. We've talked about adultery. uh, And uh, we're going to kind of move forward from adultery to talk about what it really is, uh, according to the definition from Genesis and in the 
the broader context of our modern age because it's getting pushed more and more, uh, this idea of polyamory, uh, which is new in a way, but it's also not that new in a way. Uh, and uh, it's being uh, even celebrated in TV shows and things like that as well. Okay. Uh, in our last episode, we talked about uh, sharing a couple of resources with our uh, listeners. And I think uh, we've got a couple of resources that are especially good, and you might want to consider checking them out, maybe even buying them. The, uh, the resource that, uh, that I want to share is Sexual Morality in a Christless World. It's uh, authored by Pastor Matthew Ruger. He has uh, spoken here at Good Shepherd at the uh, ACELC conference uh, just a few years ago and uh, did an outstanding job. This book is copyright 2016 by Concordia Publishing House, Sexual Morality in a Christless World. Um, it talks a lot about the uh, history uh, of... Um, sexual ethics in uh, the Jewish world, the sexual ethics in the Roman world, and how that applies to us today. It's an outstanding book and uh, very, very um, profitable for a Christian. Uh, Pastor, you've got a, a different book there that you've been working through, and uh, I want you to share a little bit about that book. Uh well, it's a book that I would encourage people to read. Obviously, all of these things come primarily from the scriptures, so I could never uh, encourage you to read that uh, enough. Uh, you have to keep on reading the scriptures and studying them. Uh, but the book that uh, has kind of been helpful for at least putting these uh, concepts onto paper is called Ethics of Sex, From Taboo to Delight. And it flowed out of a college conference that our synod did, oh, about 10 years or so ago, in which uh, they had these speakers come and talk about these different topics. And the papers have been edited and put together um, by Gifford Grobean, who I believe is a professor at the Fort Wayne Seminary. Um, my godson's brother is married to his daughter, in fact, I think. so. We'll have a quiz <laughs> later for uh, Moline family genealogy. There you go. Um, but uh, the book is helpful because it explains a lot of these issues in great detail, and it talks about the, uh, the sticky parts and uh, where we go back to Scripture to understand these things. Is that a CPH book as well then, Pastor? It is. And uh, uh, what is the uh, date and stuff on the... Uh um, well, goodness, I'd have to look. That was kind of my, the point of my question. Copyright 2017. Okay, so it's a, a fairly recent book, and uh, Pastor Moline has been extolling that. Look who just walked in. Oh, golly, it is so good to see the vicar today, hair washed, beard combed. Um, <laughs> now he's really frantic. That'll come across well on the uh, on the radio, uh, Pastor. You uh, you mentioned uh, a, a word uh, earlier, and uh, where we're going to go today. Um, and some of our hearers may have never heard that word before. So yeah. there are a couple of words that are floating around in our uh, in our society today. Uh, polyamory, polyandry, and transgenderism. Um, can can you... <laughs> Those wouldn't have been the three words I thought you were going to do. I uh, thought you were going to do polyamory, polyandry, and polygamy. 
Uh, we'll have to do transgenderism, I think, at a, a future episode. Okay. Can can you give us some <clears throat> basic grammar? Yes. And maybe, maybe you should start with monogamy. Yeah. Well, um, maybe that's a place to start is the these words all entomologically have their source back in Greek and in Latin. Uh, and so in Greek... Uh, Palu uh, means many, right? And this is where we even get the word polygon. It's a many-sided shape, um, a many-sided uh, thing. That's a polygon. And so poly means many. Uh, andros comes from the Greek word for man, um, where uh, gamas um, means marriage um, or, or wife. And then um, you have, see, polyandry, polygamy, uh, and polyamory. Amor is the Latin word, uh, the for Latin love. verb for love. love. We get the word amoris that, for, that's uh, for that. Amore. Right? right. Thank you, Dean. Um, so we have these words. Polyandry means many men in the relationship. And this is something that's happening right now, for example, in China. For a long time, they had the one-child policy to stem what they viewed as overpopulation. And as a result, uh, most of their baby girls were killed or aborted. Uh, And so they have a surplus, I guess you'd say, uh, of men, uh, all who desire family and marriage. And so they've gone to polyandry. Uh, Polygamy is kind of the opposite. It's where one man has more than one wife. And then uh, this is a new thing, but it's very popular and and chic, or as the vicar would say, based uh, in the world today. And that's polyamory, in which a group of people consent uh, to um, be sexually active with one another. And so you have uh, polyandry, Many men with one woman, uh, polygamy, many women with one man, and polyamory, a group of people all together. And these stand then opposed to monogamy. Monogamy, uh, mono, means one. Uh, and so you have one spouse, one wife uh, in the relationship, one couple. And this matches what then a, with what, what Genesis concept. says. Uh, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his one wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that's monogamy. How is polyandry different from an orgy? Well, because um, it seems to me that that's how you just described it. In in a sense, uh, I guess it could be that way. But I think um, in practice, orgy is like the next level. It's just the act itself and that they would all be involved at one time. And that would be more of a polyandrous so, so sort of thing. So they haven't made a commitment to each other? They're not, uh, they don't have a... Uh, relationship. Well, we aren't we aren't talking about the sex acts themselves yet. We're just talking about the ideas of marriage in these particular things. What what constitutes a marriage? Uh, okay. And so it's not it's not into the perverted sort of things yet. We're talking about it is perverted, but not in the act itself. Here, what we're talking about is the definition of marriage to start okay, with. Okay. So of all these things that you've talked about so far, so far polygamy. Uh, polyandry, polyamorous, and uh, monogamy. Uh, is there any any of those in the Bible? Let's be clear. Well, um, let's let's be clear. There is polygamy 
in the scriptures. Aha. Um, we have it multiple times. Um, we have it all the way back early on in the book of Genesis. Uh, we have it then also with the patriarchs themselves later on with uh, Abraham, uh, with uh, Jacob, um, and uh, we have it uh, with Solomon, we have it with David, uh, and I would just say that while it happens, uh, it is not according to the Word of God, and it never goes well. And so, you know, we'll have to get into these things. Maybe we should tackle them one at a time after the break here, each one of them, and talk about them and how they uh, are carried out and what issues there are. But I think we also need, we've talked about them uh, and their definitions. We need to know that practically speaking, this is very, 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 very common with premarital sex, extramarital sex, because even um, we, we allow our kids and our teenagers to, in a sense, be polyamorous by sending them out to sow wild oats or receive wild oats, however you want to say it, uh, in these relationships. These sorts of things are happening, practically speaking, even without understanding the definitions. So. Yeah, and I, th- and I think uh, back in the olden days, uh, this was something that was um, after... Uh, you graduated from high school and maybe went off to work or went off uh, uh, to college or something like that. And uh, because of what society has done, these uh, relationships are getting younger and younger and younger. Uh, high school age, uh, junior high age, this is, uh, this is not uncommon among us. And so we want to hear what God's Word has to say about that and specifically with regard to the one flesh union that God instituted, as you quoted earlier in Genesis chapter 2. This is Equipping the Saints. We're looking at God's gift of marriage and sexual ethics. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP. 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Equipping the Saints. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Goodroad. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We are looking at Christian ethics, specifically Christian sexual ethics. And in this episode, episode 24, we're looking at some of the uh, perversions that are... um, evident and uh, seemingly gaining in popularity in our world. We, uh, in our first segment, we tried to define some terms, monogamy, uh, polygamy, uh, polyandry, and uh, what, what is this? Polyamorous. Polyamorous. Okay, sorry about that. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll get to the topic um, because a lot of times these things are brought out with, uh, with other kinds of uh, perversions. And uh, the, the, uh, the big perversion that's going on right now, and it's very, very popular, is this whole notion of transgenderism, where boys uh, identify as girls or girls identify as boys, and then they even 
sometimes take that to the next level by uh, having medical procedures to uh, try to make that plumbing work. And uh, it, is, it is definitely a perversion against God's gift of life. And uh, we, will, we will explore that, uh, but I don't think we're going to be able to get to that in this episode 24. Pastor, when we talk about Genesis 2, God's gift of marriage, uh, this one flesh union, is, uh, is this the way it has been from the beginning? Um, or was this really something that was like added on later after Abraham and after David and after uh, Jacob and uh, all of these Old Testament people who had more than one wife? Didn't, didn't they get it? Uh, did, did God hide this uh, one flesh union institution of marriage, one man, one woman for life? Did he hide that from them? What was going on? Uh, no, it was very clear, and in fact, uh, for most of the beginning of human history, it was uh, understood and carried out until we get to uh, chapter 4 of the book of Genesis. Uh, chapter 4 begins with uh, Cain and Abel, and Cain murders his brother Abel. And uh, after this is discovered, God, of course, um, uh, sorts out the issues, and we have the account of two different groups of people existing in the church flowing out of that. We have the sons of God who are descended from the line of Adam through Seth, uh, the next son, and this is the faithful remnant. These are the people who we would say are, in a sense, Christians. They go to church regularly. And then we have descended from Cain, a different line, which in a sense is the church of Satan. Cain murdered his brother Abel, um, but we have ten generations of descendants recorded in Scripture from him and ten from Seth, or from Adam through Seth. And so this, these two groups of people, the faithful and the unfaithful, are carried through in that particular part of Scripture. And the seventh in the generation through Cain, his name is Lamech, and Interestingly, in the account of Lamech, uh, it makes a point that Lamech took two wives. Now, the question is, why would it make that point? Why would that be a big deal? Because it's the first time that it's happened. Uh, this line descended from Cain has rejected God's word, and one of the evidences of that is that Lamech has two wives, Ada and Zillah. Uh, and Lamech is also famous because he also was a murderer. Uh, he uh, is the first poem in scripture is recorded about Lamech as well, um, that uh, uh, he had murdered someone, and therefore uh, the curse of Cain is uh, uh, multiplied upon him as well. Um, and his line then also is all about human intuition and ingenuity and accomplishment and uh, the things that they're able to do, the uh, technology that they invent, uh, the things they're able to accomplish by themselves apart from God. By their own reason and strength. And this is then the wickedness that builds up that leads to the flood in the time of Noah. Okay, so God's intent from literally from day one of uh, his creation of Adam and Eve is, uh, which happened on day six, by the way, uh, is one man, one woman for life. This is uh, God's gift of marriage. This is the one flesh union. And we know that because they point out with Lamech 
that he had yes. two wives. You, if if it was commonplace, they would never ever mention that. You 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 made that crystal clear, and I really appreciate that run through uh, the history in Genesis. So, what do we do then with the people in the faithful line, the Christians, the believers, um, that? Uh, I, I don't know exactly what I want to say, uh, that uh, turn their backs on God's word and God's gift of marriage. And uh, you're right, it never goes well. But uh, we have several examples in the Old Testament scriptures of the patriarchs who had more than one wife. This is a very, very common um, uh, argument against marriage, a very, very common argument against Scripture. I know Vicar pointed out during the break that he has heard this multiple times from uh, from people who are trying to justify, um, you know, polyamory or polygamy or whatever. Well, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Uh, Pastor, how would you uh, respond to that uh, that kind of an argument? Well, we have to remember that the scriptures are history, and so they're describing the things that actually took place. And so, yes, Abraham had, uh, in a sense, two wives, uh, at least a wife and a concubine. Uh, Jacob had four wives, at least, uh, two wives and two concubines. Um, We have these instances where this happens, and historically that's describing it. But just because it's describing something does not mean that it's okay or that it's good. We know then also in Genesis 3 that the people fall into sin and that sin corrupts everything and leads to death. We know that in Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. That describes the historical account that took place. That does not justify me killing other people today. We can't say that because people in old did it that it's all right. We see uh, theft, right? Uh, Jacob steals the birthright from his brother Esau, in a sense, uh, buys it. Uh, That doesn't mean that theft is okay. Just because these patriarchs did it doesn't make it okay. Now, I think where we have the problem is, is that oftentimes we see the patriarchs and we think that these are extra holy people and that's why God has chosen them and that they are so good and so amazing and so holy that we ought to emulate them, uh, kind of the what would Abraham do sort of bracelets and things like that. That's not the case. These patriarchs are sinful people, just like you and I are sinful. They do stupid things, just like you and I uh, do stupid things. Uh, They sin daily and much, just like you and I sin daily and much. And the only hope that they actually have is the promise of Jesus Christ. And in fact, I think they know that. And in fact, that's what leads to uh, Abraham's um, uh, adultery and polyamory, in effect, uh, because um, God has promised he and his wife, Sarah, that they will have a child and that through that child, the entire world will be blessed and that uh, his descendants will number like the stars and like the sand on the shore. um, And they aren't having the baby. And so they try to take things into their own hands. Well, God promised this. It must be true, and it's going to be good. But it's not coming about the way that we want it to. And so you should take my slave, Hagar, and you should sleep with her and have your offspring through her. And in that sense, um, it's really... um, synergistically trying to accomplish what God has promised through the work of man. And that's where this polyamorous stuff really begins in the Bible. And I think we we run into the danger when we 
when we misunderstand the material principle or the primary point, the main thing of Scripture. The main thing of Scripture is the forgiveness of sins through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not a handbook for moral living. It is not an example book of how to emulate others. It is a book about Jesus and the forgiveness that flows from him. One of the, one of the comforting things I have with Scripture is that Scripture does not whitewash the sins of the patriarchs. Uh, it does not whitewash the sins of uh, the heroes of the faith. They are flawed human beings. They wrestle with sin every day. We've brought up a couple of examples of people that wrestled with sexual sin. Um, and when we, when we get to this, Pastor, uh, whatever type of sexual sin we're talking about, uh, we've, been, we've been bringing up the, the polygamy and polyandry and polyamorous relationships and all these kind of things, but you can lump in pretty much every sexual sin. Isn't it a form of idolatry? It, it is um, in the sense that, like I said, oftentimes it's making God into our image and, and being God ourself to decide what's right and what's wrong and, and thereby justifying ourselves, which is God's job, um, and what we're doing. And so in that sense, it is wrong and we should not do that. We should repent of our sin and let God be God and listen to what God says rather than what our own sinful hearts say. Why is this such an alluring temptation? Um, you know, uh, in the 70s, there was a, a real popular number one song, Torn Between Two Lovers, um, uh, about a gal with uh, basically two men. And, uh, you know, you can look at a lot of different music and movies and these kind of things. We uh, turn on the TV and there was a big HBO production until the till the main guy died, uh, Bill Paxton, a big love, talking about a man um, with three wives. Uh, Vicar, what was the name of that uh, that uh, television show that you brought up? Sister Wives. Sister Wives, a reality TV show. We uh, th- This is nothing new. You turn on the TV show, um, that 70s show, and uh, one of the couples uh, are uh, swingers, um, wives swapping and you know all this kind of stuff this, this stuff is is nothing new uh we just have fancy names for it now i think uh so tell me pastor why why is this uh temptation so alluring well i think a part of our sin is always wanting more than god has given us and so Th- thinking god is holding out on us yeah i mean um the grass is always greener on the other side, right? Okay, okay. And this is something that uh, affects us. And even, I think, in some ancient Greek philosophers, they write about this idea that the only way you can really understand um, what woman is is if you experience every woman that ever lives and that that's the way that you would grow to a complete knowledge of something or that the only way you could understand man is if you under experience every man that's ever lived it can go both ways and so it's this idea of wanting to get a taste of what other things are out there that are beyond what god has actually bestowed upon us and this is the same uh, thing taste forbidden fruit Right. It's the same thing that happens in the Garden of Eden, right? You can eat from any tree in the garden except for this one. And so the first thing that we do is we we try it. And, and 
this still happens today, right? Um, you know, when you were a kid uh, and your, your parents said, well, don't do this, the first thing you did when they weren't looking is do the thing that they said, right? Yep. Um, that's just the very nature of sin, wanting to be our own God and throw out God's word. And I think we covered that in our previous episode when we talked about pornography and how often the uh, sin, the plague of pornography, leads to outbursts of sin, uh, the kind of sins that we're talking about in this episode. We need to take a short break. This is Equipping the Saints. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Equipping the Saints, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Goodroad. We serve the Saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. On this episode 24, we're looking at some of the uh, sexual perversions that sometimes attack God's gift of marriage. In our first segment, we spent most of our time trying to define terms, and uh, it's a good thing uh, Vicar wasn't here because he even has a few more terms that we didn't get to. Um, but uh, we're, we're looking at this, uh, this whole um, attack on God's gift of the one flesh union in marriage. It comes in a variety of names and shapes and sizes and descriptions. In our last segment, we looked uh, mostly at uh, the uh, sin of polygamy and uh, what what to do when people make arguments from Scripture with regard to polygamy. And I think Pastor Moline did an outstanding job of uh, covering that topic. Uh, Pastor, before we, uh, before we move on, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, like sister wives and big love and some of these popular television shows that are out there. Um, these are all Mormons. And Mormons are supposed to be known for their squeaky, clean morals. Uh, How in the world do we get squeaky, clean, moral Mormons that you'd love to have as your neighbor because they're going to pay their taxes and uh, keep the lawn trimmed and beautiful? How do we get this, uh, this obsession almost with polygamy in Mormonism? Well, uh, that's a big question. Uh, I think to understand that we have to go back to the founding of Mormonism, where uh, there was a man named Joseph Smith who lived out on the east, I think in New York, uh, who was a treasure digger. Uh, What that means is back then, uh, this time, the early 1800s, they would go to someone's house and they'd say, I hear you have a treasure there, and uh, uh, you know, if you give me some food and some shelter for a while, I'll dig it up and then we'll split what the treasure is. And in such a way, they would uh, be able to provide sustenance for themselves for a while while they're just digging a big it hole in your yard. could be gold or silver or something like that. And there yeah. never was a treasure, <laughs> just to be clear. It was something they were inventing. 
And uh, for a while that worked, but then he discovered that there was even bigger money in religion. And so he decided to invent his own religion. Uh, There's a a CPH book about uh, where he got a lot of it from uh, that uh, is kind of interesting. I don't know if you can still buy it or not, but uh, basically some guy had invented a story about where the Native Americans came from, that they were the uh, ancient Israelites that uh, escaped Israel that disappeared. Uh, and so Joseph Smith got a hold of this one copy of the book and uh, added in some Bible passages and then began to peddle it as his own religion. When you get to be in charge of your own religion, then there are some things that um, you put in there that are things that you want. And uh, one of the things that uh, Joseph Smith, and then probably more so through his, um, his uh, su- successor, Brigham Young, wanted was uh, to have more than one wives, to, uh, to taste what the grass was like on the other side of the fence, uh, to use the example we used earlier. And so because that's something that he wanted, they put it in there and they started to practice polygamy, uh, so much so that uh, these early leaders of the Mormon church had uh, multiple wives, and uh, it's kind of like the American version of Islam, <laughs> to be completely frank with you. Um, Islam began with Muhammad, and he had multiple wives, including uh, one as young as 12, but he didn't consecrate that marriage uh, um, until much later on. In the same way, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young had multiple wives, and even young ones as young as 12. Um, And uh, this all kind of took off until Utah wanted to become a state, and the United States government said, well, if you're going to have polygamy, you can't can't be a state. And so then they received a revelation from God that says, well, we can't have more than one wife anymore because we need uh, the benefits of being a state in the United States. And there are some offshoots of Mormonism that reject that and uh, practice either openly or secretly polygamy to this day. Right. And that's that's the whole premise behind Sister Wives or Big Love or some of these and, things. And I know that that was a very quick speed through that topic because we could talk about it for about six weeks. And so that was just a, a very surface level. And Islam is wrong. Mormonism is wrong. They are false religions, and there is nothing true in them. Uh, to add to that, they're also not Christian. A lot of people Correct. will have that misconception that Mormonism, since they talk about Jesus, is a Christian religion, where it is officially not. It, uh, it amazes me how, um, how Mormonism has uh, changed and adapted its uh, primary teachings uh, you know, you mentioned statehood. Uh, Brigham Young has a football team, and uh, there was a day when uh, people with black skin were not allowed to be Mormons. And uh, one of the main reasons that uh, that was changed was so that Brigham Young could have a competitive football team. And so um, when you have a religion, uh, and I'll quote put quotes around it, when you have a religion like that, that bends and shapes uh, with the culture and the time, uh, you you have a pretty good clue right there that uh, you are not dealing with the eternal, changeless word of God. Right, and I think there's the, the, the truth that we can discover from this, whether uh, you agree with Mormonism or not, you can at least admit that their God is not immutable or unchangeable, uh, but that he does change. And if that's the case, uh, can you ever be sure and certain of your salvation? Is that actually a good God, right? Uh, if he can change his mind on polygamy, on uh, uh, the different races in our, our land, or uh, even on uh, 
you know, can you uh, drink caffeine or not? If he can change his mind on these questions because a group of 12 people decide so, then how do you know he's not going to change his mind on you if you are amongst the saved and the elect? Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, the whole multiple wife thing in Mormonism fits in well with uh, repopulating your own planet. There's so much more that we could get into. And, and uh, hopefully we'll spend some time on uh, Mormonism uh, in a future program, uh, with, maybe with Equipping the Saints, maybe with a different program. I think that would be helpful and beneficial. But we are talking about Christian ethics. We are talking about sexual ethics ethics and uh, just because you see it on TV uh, does not mean that it is God pleasing and speaking of that that's my segue pastor um, I haven't seen any of the shows that uh, that you tell me are out there but you tell me that there is a growing trend toward poly help me get the word right here polyamorous relations or polyandry uh, with television shows and uh, reality shows and some of these things that are out there, um, help yeah. me help me understand this. I've got my own theories on maybe how this got started, but uh, help me understand what's what's being fed to our our young people or people in general today. Yeah, I haven't watched a lot of these shows either because I think they're morally wrong. But there's been a TV show called Polyamory, uh, Married and Dating uh, is the name of it, about a group of people that are, you know, young and hip people, kind of like friends, you know, but they're polyamorous. And if we're just going to be honest about it, let's well, just go the, down that path. In the, t- in the TV show Friends, they <laughs> that, were all sleeping with each other anyway. Exactly. And that's the thing, right? It's, um, it's crept in. All the way back, uh, we, we have stopped saying that sex belongs between husband and wife within the bonds of marriage. And so it's begun to be extramarital, premarital, and all these things. And now we're codifying it with this idea of polyamory and celebrating it. Uh, and it just keeps pushing the envelope a little bit further and further and further. So we went from the definition of marriage that we had in Genesis, and then we said, okay, uh, but we can't expect people to wait until they're married to have sex, and so it's okay for kids to do it, you know. And then parents have said, well, I did it when I was a kid, so who am I to tell my kid that it's wrong? And then we begin to celebrate it more, and then we say, well, what's the difference? Why shouldn't they be considered married if they love each other? And we push it further and further and further until we begin to celebrate it, and um, it's really the way that all sorts of sin enters the world, and except to the rule becomes uh, normalized and then celebrated and then becomes the new rule and that uh, undermines God's words terribly. Charles Porterfield Crouth, uh, great, great Lutheran theologian in the uh, 19th century, and he talked about the stages of error that creep into the church. And he talked about three stages of error. And the first is uh, just, just tolerate us. Just, just tolerate us. And the uh, second stage of error is uh, equality, equal footing. And the third stage of error is uh, my teaching, my error, is now the rule or the norm. And uh, I think if Krauth was alive today, he would add a fourth stage to that. You must celebrate it. Because if you don't celebrate it, then you are somehow inherently bad or evil. We see this uh, every year. Um, 
during the month of June when uh, the the whole country goes crazy with regard to pride uh, and uh, celebrating uh, deviant sexuality, and it's not it's not so much the uh, businesses that are virtue signaling, although they're everywhere. Um, but if uh, if you're a major league baseball player and uh, you have a moral objection to putting a pride patch on your uniform, uh, you run the risk of sitting the bench or being fired. Uh, and this is happening not only in professional sports, this is happening in the workplace as well. This is happening in all of culture, where if you don't celebrate somebody else's perversion, you are targeted as evil. See, but I think that's getting downstream where the real issue is. It's trying to plug the leak in the dam uh, 10 miles down further. I think the way that we have to address this is to actually, in the family, moms and dads, you have to talk about these things with your kids when they're young, before they're thinking about these things, before they're in school talking about these things with their friends, because they will be, and they'll hear about it in school. And uh, whether the teachers are doing it or, or it's just from their friends and their, um, the people that they interact with there. So we need to talk about what's right and wrong. We need to make sure that our kids know the definition of marriage and how that plays out in their entire lives before they've lived their life. If you have sinned against this particular issue. Uh, you can't just throw up your hands and say, well, I did it, so who am I to say something to my kids? You need to tell your kids, I did this, and it was wrong, and it made a lot of problems in this way and that way, uh, and talk about it clearly and, and plainly with them. And I know that's maybe awkward for us. We need to get over that and suck it up and be adults uh, and actually parent our kids on this. And uh, I'm going to just say this, you know, uh, I in case you think I'm a hypocrite, I have two of my kids sitting with me right now as we're talking about this, and whether they're paying attention or not, they're hearing it, and that's a starting point uh, in the conversation. And I would say uh, talk to your pastor with regard to this, uh, uh, the resources uh, that we mentioned earlier in our program, and uh, Luther's small catechism. The Synodical Questions and Answers in our most current uh, catechism addresses many of these difficult topics, and that'll give you the uh, biblical foundation on where to go. And also, CPH has uh, recently published, I think, 24 or 32 little bitty topical booklets that are very, very well done. Their uh, introduction uh, to how a Christian can deal with topics like divorce and homosexuality and transgenderism and all of the uh, kind of things that we're talking about that we need to talk about. And quite frankly, pastors need to speak about these things from the pulpit and in Bible study as well. While the kids are young, before they're preteens, because that's when they're going to start carrying out these things. I'm just going to be honest. Before they've been catechized by the world. We'll be right back. We need a short break. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.
Welcome back to Equipping the Saints. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Goodroad. We serve the Saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We'd love to have you join us for worship. We gather each Sunday at 8 and 1030 with Sunday School for All Ages in between. And uh, like Pastor Moline uh, talked about, uh, we have people of all ages in our uh, Bible study on Sunday morning, and sometimes the littlest ones are uh, coloring a page or reading a book or whatever, but they are listening, and they are watching their parents uh, study seriously God's Word, and uh, we don't, we don't uh, purposely try to offend anyone or to shock and awe people, but uh, we, don't, we don't sugarcoat the Word of God. We, uh, we teach the Word of God, and uh, I think it's uh, a good thing, and it's helpful. Uh, we also worship on Wednesday evenings at 6.30, so please join us. We, uh, we really love your feedback on this program. I've got a couple of questions that uh, I have heard recently that uh, I need to share with, with uh, Pastor Moline and Vicar Goodroad that we can address in future, uh, future episodes. But uh, as we conclude this episode 24, we've been uh, talking about perversions to the one flesh union, God's gift of marriage, under the general topic of polyandry. We've uh, talked about polygamy. We've talked about uh, polyandry. And it just, it just seems to me, I mentioned this earlier, that uh, all of these sexual perversions are forms of of idolatry. And uh, I don't think I dreamed that up. I think I learned that from Romans chapter 1. Vicar, do you want to share Romans 1, 18 through, well, let's go 18 to 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay, so in that section, Pastor, and it, and it goes on, and we, we will be studying in greater detail the rest of Romans chapter 1 because of some of the specific sins that it brings out. But when I, when I uh, hear Vicar read those words once again, I can't, think, uh, I can't help but think of the golden calf and how people fashioned images according to nature or the creatures of this world. And we know that the golden calf worship, uh, as recorded for us in Scripture, included many, many types of sexual perversions. And so um, it appears to me that when we reject God, we reject his word, uh, we become a god unto ourselves, we fashion other gods to uh, our likes or dislikes, our passions, our pleasures, our greeds, our lust, and that's how we get to the point where we are today. Is, is that 
is that fair or is that uh, too simplistic? Uh, I think it's it's probably fair. Um, Any time that we reject God, we are in a sense putting ourselves above God. If if the definition of God is uh, the power and the authority above all other powers and authorities, right? In just a simple philosophical sense. Sure. And so if God says something and we say, well, I don't really like that, then he's no longer God because he's not the ultimate authority or power anymore. Instead, we've said, well, I'm a step above you because I can decide what you say is wrong. And in doing that, we make ourselves into God. I think it's it's Mark Twain who really put it well, uh, that in the beginning, God created man in his image, and ever since, mankind's been trying to return the favor to him. Um, That's really what we're doing when we justify or twist or change what God's Word says to allow these sorts of perversions that take place, not just, you know, uh, in the sense of polyamory and polygamy, but then in the way that it flows outward into uh, extramarital and premarital sex as well. You know, Pastor, uh, when I was young, when people dated, it was one boy and one girl. That that was constituting a date. Uh, maybe you went to a movie, maybe you went out to eat, uh, maybe you went to a ball game or on a picnic. Uh, that was a date. And then I started to notice, uh, I don't know, 20 or 25 years ago, that uh, there was kind of a new phenomenon that was uh, uh, breaking into the dating scene, and it was called group dating, where groups of boys and girls, so five, six, eight, ten, would all go out together. And I think the the idea behind that is parents didn't trust their kids or parents didn't think that a boy and a girl could be alone together for very long without uh, some hanky-panky going on. And uh, if we send them out in a group, that will keep them safe. Well, now, uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, we have groups doing the exact same thing that uh, parents were worried about uh, two individuals doing. Uh, How can we curb the passions and the lusts that are, you know, a part of the old Adam or old Eve that lives inside of us? Obviously, group dating instead of two people dating didn't do it. In fact, it just exacerbated the problem. And why is that? I think the reason is because that's a solution of the law, right? Because what it's saying is, well, here's, here's the law. Uh, you're going to be with a group of people, so this won't happen. I think that the thing we need to do is to actually, actually talk about it in terms of the gospel, that uh, marriage and sexuality is a gift from God. And we've got to talk about how important a gift of God it is. And uh, we need to say, uh, this is such a wonderful and amazing thing that God also has put these boundaries, uh, the fireplace we've been talking about this entire series, uh, in place as well, so that it can be protected and, and viewed and understood the proper way. And so if we can instill in our children and in our our church members as a whole across the entirety of the church, what a valuable thing God's gift of marriage is, then that will help us 
to curb a lot of these things because people will go out of their way to protect and to defend it the right way. Instead, what we've done is we've said it's cheap, it's unimportant, it's throwaway, we can get rid of it in divorce, uh, we can experience these things outside of marriage uh, with anybody we want to, whenever we want to, and we've, uh, as Christians, what we've done is constantly said the law, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, rather than to say, do it, in the proper setting. Do it with the proper words applied to it. You know, uh, you are husband and wife now. And to support one another, we, we've become shy talking about these topics rather than being bold. And if it's shy that we act with uh, regard to these things, and we're saying it's really not that important because we don't even want to talk about it. Let's talk about it. Let's be bold. Let's speak the truth. Let's uphold it as a gift from God and as a blessing from God. And I think that that's the way to actually tackle these issues. What I, what I, and I, I spot on, Pastor, I agree with every word you said. Uh, what I have witnessed, uh, you know, in uh, the 40 or so years of uh, various places in ministry that I've been is that uh, there are times when parents will talk about this. But they will not talk about it from a biblical perspective. They will not talk about it from uh, that God's gift of marriage kind of a perspective. They talk about it grudgingly according to how they've been catechized by the world. Um, you know, kids are kids, and they're going to do what they're going to do. So I need to provide birth control for my kids, uh, boys or girls, um, to uh, prevent a child because, you know, kids are going to do it anyway. Uh, I'll get a motel room for my uh, son or daughter and their date after prom so that I know at least they're not going to be out on the street. At least, at least I know they'll be safe that way. Uh, parents uh, are bold to talk and act in accord with what the world expects or even demands of them, but uh, we're shy and uh, not bold when it comes to speaking the truth of God's word. Even the the words that we use now, I think the way we talk about, uh, like for example, abstinence, in a sense that has become a legalism. That uh, whenever we end up in legalism, it ultimately takes away from the person work of Jesus. I think that's why um, the the old word chastity is even a better word because chastity uh, acknowledges that this is a good thing and it's a gift and it's just to be used in the proper setting and proper way. And I think then too um, when. When there are errors or uh, failures or shortcomings that come about, rather than beating down with the law, we definitely need to use the law, and, and the law is good and wise. We also need to make sure that we are willing to apply the gospel in, in these particular instances as well, to talk about how these are things Christ has died for uh, because he finds you as a person and this gift of marriage that he's given to you, uh, whether he's giving it to you in the future or whatever, this chastity that he's given to you is important as well, so much so that he bled and died to give this thing to you. Um, I think we need to talk about it in that way as well. Why do you think that word uh, chastity or leading a chaste and decent life, why do you think that word has uh, virtually fallen away from our society and most churches? I think because um, a lot of the churches and the uh, faith groups that exist in the United States 
are in fact legalists at their core, and it's not a legalist sort of wor- uh, word. It's a um, it's a gift sort of word. And uh, so, if we're going to be legalists, let's use a legalist word, and uh, rather than talk about it the way God does. So, is that fair? Or what uh, do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, so, if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, Pastor, what uh, what you've been extolling is for churches, pastors parents, grandparents, to be bold, to know God's word and to know what God's word says with regard to his gift of marriage and gift of sexuality, and to be bold to speak that word, um, even even to our children and grandchildren when they are very young, because the world already has their ear. Uh, most of our young people uh, have a smartphone. Most of our young people have access to the internet or to cable TV or whatever. They're hearing these things, and if we remain silent, and if we don't speak the law, what God says is right and what's wrong, and the gospel, the gift of sexuality, the gift of marriage, the gift of procreation inside of marriage, then uh, we're really doing our children a disservice. Right, and I think it's, uh, you know, um, we're so afraid to do it because it's talking about body parts that are maybe a little awkward to talk about. But the reality is, if we're going to use God's definitions and God's way of speaking about it, we can extol it a whole lot without talking about body parts, without talking about functions of body parts. We can we can say what God says in Genesis. We can talk about the examples in Scripture that are good marriages. We can talk about uh, even... Um, you know, the Song of Solomon, right, which extols both marriage and Christ together, and it does so in a tasteful way. I know that's a debatable question there, but uh, when we talk about it positively, that's the best way to go about it. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you for tuning in today. This has been episode 24 of Equipping the Saints. We've got so much more to say on this topic of Christian ethics and God's gift of marriage. Join us again soon, won't you? God's richest blessings in Christ. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.